0: Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. Our speaker this morning, most of everyone here would know Bill and Cheryl. Have you ever heard Gary McBride or met him before? Gary McBride hails from Timmins, Kirkland Lake. Kirkland Lake, Ontario. And uh, they come to the area for uh, uh, once a year. Um, And we're happy to have them down, the ministers of God who are there. We're happy that he could be with us for a couple of Sundays. So we're going to turn the remainder of our Bible instruction time over to our brother, Gary. Very good. Let's turn our Bibles to where Bob read for us from 2 Timothy chapter uh, 2. We've been looking at this on Wednesday nights, and I want to continue with this chapter Uh, this morning. Just to give a review, an overview, Uh, some of you haven't been out on Wednesdays, but what we're thinking about is here is uh, Paul's final words. Uh, So probably in the year late 64 or 65 of that first century, he was beheaded in 66. And so this is his last letter that he wrote. Uh, Previously, he'd been in prison from perhaps uh, 60 to 62, and he'd written the prison epistles as we call them, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and he also wrote to Philemon. Uh, He got out of prison uh, for about a year and a half. Nobody knows for sure where he went. Uh, It's thought he went at least as far as Spain, but some think he went as far as Great Britain as well. And then he was rearrested and put back in prison. And then of course Nero was on the the throne and uh, started persecuting the Christians. And so Paul is writing uh, at the end of his life, not knowing what the future holds. Timothy is in Ephesus and that local assembly had been going perhaps just for maybe 15 years or just over that. And obviously uh, people saved out of various backgrounds, out of (coughs) paganism, idolatry. And uh, at that time there were people who were like charlatans, they were making money of religious activities. So there were people traveling around. Uh, Obviously there was no Best Western or anything to stay in, so they would stay in people's uh, homes and uh, take advantage sometimes, and sometimes their message wasn't uh, true. So John in his uh, second or third epistle writes about that type of thing too, not receiving people who don't uh, bring the truth about the Lord Jesus. Christ. So Timothy is probably 35, 36, 37 years old, and in a culture where the older you are, the more uh, status you might have. Uh, It's not experience so much as not godliness, but uh, culture often dictates uh, status. And so Timothy was viewed as a younger man. So remember in his first epistle, Paul said, don't let anybody despise your youth. Now, we would think somebody 35 depends where you are. Uh, Ty would think they're old people. Uh, some of us would think they're just youngsters, but depending uh, where you are. So in that, uh, you know, in an Eastern culture, African culture, often age is is significant and very, very uh, important. So in chapter one, Paul looks back and he draws Timothy's attention to influences in his life. And so there have been people who've been examples. Uh, there's a couple of people mentioned in chapter 1 who were poor examples. Phygellus and Hermogenes, in chapter 1, verse 15, were poor examples, but there are other influences on his life that were good examples. And so Paul mentions his mother and his grandmother as having an influence an example. Let me just suggest that as you go on in life, you can still have influence. Uh, we, as you know, ran a camp for... Uh, 27 years, Northland Bible Camp. It was amazing over the years uh, how many children professed to get saved who had believing grandparents but not believing parents. How it somehow skipped a generation, but you knew the grandparents were praying for them, perhaps paying for them to go to, uh, go to camp. And so you can still have that, that influence down through the years. One of the things we talked about was uh, you can't control the output, but you can control the input. And so you can be an example uh, in the way you talk, the way you behave, what's of value uh, in your your life. Uh, we uh, live near four of our grandchildren. We try to be very conscious of the fact that we can be an influence in their life uh, as they grow. And so that's what Paul reminds Timothy. You've had a good influence. Now, his father wasn't saved. And so we don't know anything about his, his father. But these two women were a positive influence, a positive example in his, in his life. And from that home, uh, Timothy, as a young man, obviously made a mark. And when uh, T- Paul uh, saw him, and he was well-reported by uh, the other believers, Paul took him with him on his journey. And so uh, Paul, of course, was an example uh, to Timothy. And he outlines some of that in chapter 1. And so drawing attention to the past, two examples, good and bad. And then he ends the chapter with this man Onesimus, who is a tremendous example uh, in sacrificial giving and, and living. And so, so important. Uh, you know, a good example is worth more than a good sermon, right? It's the life we we live. And so, so uh, important. But he also tells Timothy not only uh, did he have these examples that would encourage him, but he was equipped by the Lord to serve. And so he had a spiritual gift that he was to foster and to use. And, of course, all of us have a spiritual gift. Now, the Lord doesn't write it. Uh, in front of us what our gift is, but as we grow and develop, uh, it should become obvious as we exercise our gift. uh, Perhaps others may see it first, but uh, we do have a spiritual gift. Uh, The four passages we mentioned, uh, 1 Peter 4, Ephesians 4, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, all outline gifts that the Lord has given. 28 various gifts are mentioned in the New Testament, but all of us uniquely, I think, are gifted by the Lord. Now there are some things we're all to do. Paul will say in this epistle we're all to do the work of an evangelist. We're all to show hospitality. Uh, Some may have the gift of doing those things, but there are things that we are all uh, to be engaged in. So he was equipped and also the spirit within him. He said, you've not been given a spirit of fear, but of uh, love and of a sound mind and of power. The Holy Spirit has equipped him to serve. And so looking back, Paul just gives them this encouragement. Here's, here's where it's behind you. Now here's where you're going. In chapter 2, we saw he's looking at the present. He's looking at the circumstances of the day, trying to encourage Timothy where he's at. When you get to chapter 3 and chapter 4, he's looking to the future. Here's what's coming. Here's what it's like. Here's what's going to happen. Here's what people are going to be like and how they're going to respond and, and so on. So here in chapter 2, he's addressing uh, the present and we can see ourselves in chapter 2 and we saw that it divides nicely into three sections in verse 7 he tells us that there's things we should reflect on think about keep these in mind And what he's talked about in the first six verses is the the seriousness and uh, strategies of the Christian life and he's used these examples of somebody in the army somebody in athletics and somebody in agriculture a, you know an athlete a soldier A farmer uh, they they put the work in but he says ultimately it's a satisfying life because at the end of life there's a reward uh, that's given and so he says that's that's important then he tells us in verse 8 there's things we need to remember and he talks about the the person of our Savior the Lord Jesus Christ he then talks about the power of the scriptures he might be in chains but God's word isn't isn't bound And then he talks about the prospect of scrutiny of our life. Ultimately, one day we'll stand before the Savior, and we'll give an account for the life we've lived. And I would suggest that we in this culture and in the Western world have been given so much more than people in so many other parts of the world. And to whom much is given, much is expected. Uh, Where there's privilege, there's responsibility. There's also accountability. And so we have been blessed immeasurably Uh, by God's grace we've been in a number of countries where people don't have what we have and uh, We have so much and we will be accountable for the blessings God has given us and so life uh, is worth living in view of what's coming now when we get to verse 14 Uh, The New King James says in the first word, remind them. And so we've reflected on some things, we've remembered some things. Now here are things that we need to be reminded of. Now, how many of us need to be reminded of anything? Uh, If you're a husband, you know, you need to be reminded often, perhaps, of certain things. Um, What to buy and what not to buy, those types of things. Um, you know, they say growing old is mandatory, maturity is optional. And so uh, there are things we need to be reminded of for sure. Uh, this morning we remembered the Lord, and that was the Lord's command. And it reminds us week by week of what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us. Uh, Peter, uh, especially in Second Peter, talked about the importance of reminding. He says, you know these things, but I'm reminding you of them. Uh, he was a repeater. He kept saying the same thing over and over again. Why? Because short memories. And so we need to be reminded. So he wants us to, to know these things, to be reminded of these of these things. And I would suggest that as we think of this passage, it, it flows uh, somewhat differently than some of Paul's writings because he inserts positive and negatives and positive and negatives throughout the, the passage. Uh, Usually he uh, puts things together, uh, you know, the negatives say in Colossians 3, 5 to to 8, and then the positives in verse 12 to verse 14 group together. He often does that type of of thing. But here it sort of intertwines and weaves in between. So he gives us some things to, to be reminded of. And a lot of it has to do with what's within us, the attitudes we have. And it's so true, isn't it, that Uh, The attitude we have about life, about people, about things, about circumstances often flows into actions. Uh, What we're thinking comes out in conversation. And so he says this is really important to consider these things, to be reminded of these things. And one of the things he he wants to to remind them of and remind us of is there are things to, to avoid. Things to avoid. And as Bob read in that news verse, as you saw, some of those things, and there's more in the balance of the chapter. But we're to avoid, he says in verse 14, striving about words to no profit. So that's something to be avoided. In verse 16, again, depending on your translation, but it says here, idle babblings, we're to avoid that. You look down at verse 23, Avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing they generate strife. And so there are things we are to avoid. Now, sadly, the history of the Christian church has been often marked by these things. That's part of the, the history. I think most of us are at an age where we recognize that often uh, when disputes come, when conflict comes, arguments come, whether you know in a family, in a, in a marriage, or in a local church, Often, we lose sight of the issue and we start attacking the person, right We focus on the person, uh, how stupid they are, how dumb they are, whatever. we forget about the the issue, and so that that just exasperates that puts the the issue uh, further down the road, of course, but through scripture we 're told a number of times uh, Philippians tells us not to dispute or to grumble to argue. Uh, James tells us, both in chapter 4 and chapter 5, that uh, we're not to grumble or complain or argue. That's not to characterize us. Just look back over the page to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, just say verse 3 to verse 5. If anyone teaches otherwise, not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, the doctrine which accords with godliness he is proud knowing nothing but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, revilings, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain from such withdraw yourself. So uh, obviously some of this was going on. and Paul in 1 Timothy gives examples in every chapter and he's mentioned uh, some already in chapter 1 of 2 uh, Timothy. Uh, People are occupied with with things that don't really, don't really matter. Now, just in a practical way, you know that when you read the New Testament, it really says nothing about how we gather, tells us why we gather. But I'm not sure you can find a single word in the New Testament as to how we are to gather. Uh, Why do we sit in chairs? They're not mentioned in the New Testament. What gives us the right to sit in chairs Uh, we have hymn books they're not mentioned in the New Testament Uh, a piano is not mentioned in the New Testament Uh, so when you think of of how we meet there's just nothing the why is so important we meet for fellowship for prayer for breaking of bread for Apostles doctrine we meet to equip to encourage all those things but not a single word about how we are to meet, yet think back at the age many of us are at at the conflicts there's been over the how we meet so often uh, i've seen it in i mean i 'm young compared to one or two of you, but i've seen it in my life and experiences as, as well just people you know uh, this morning we had multiple cups well, in many places that was a big big issue, going from a single cup to to multiple cups uh, we do a Couple that left an assembly over that issue; they couldn't handle uh, that idea. Uh, some places we go, they they have music, they piano at the Lord's Supper. I've known people that have left meetings over over uh, that issue. All sorts of things have come up over the years in the how, and it's fine to have opinions. Uh, we all have, you know, preferences and and so on, but. It's it's so important to recognize. Well, what does what's scriptural? And what's just my preference? What's what's just something I like to do? And you know, uh, some places we go, the the choruses and the way they're presented are far different than what we uh, do here. And that's not my preference. I like songs I can remember the words and and uh, we're harmony and, uh, and so on. Those things happen. But again, it's not scriptural. And one of the things. You know, you find when you travel the world, is people do the how differently. Uh, in India, for instance, traditionally, when somebody gave thanks for the bread and wine, everybody got down on their knees. The whole audience got down on their knees. You know, I wouldn't suggest you try that next Sunday because some of you wouldn't get up again. But uh, <laughs> but that's a cultural thing. That's that's what they did. Uh, in, in Eastern Europe, I don't remember anybody ever standing for a hymn, but they stood when somebody prayed It's just again what they what they did and so uh, things are different around the world, so the how really doesn't matter. I mean it does matter in a sense uh, It's good to have some unity and and consistency, but not to do what Paul is talking about here, contending for things that that scripture doesn't uh address. Now, things are going to come up, but the key is not to be contentious. How do I, how do I address things? How do I deal with things that, that aren't scriptural? Now, Paul mentions in here something that is scriptural. These two men saying that Christ has already turned and overthrowing the faith of some. That's something that has to, you have to take a stand on. But he's also talking about these other things that, that don't really uh, make a difference. In verse 24... Says the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, and so again, that's a, an inner attitude. I'm not going to, I'm not going to engage uh, in it. Uh, it's interesting. I was in prison once. Been in prison many times, not because of things I did, but out of ministry. Uh, they let me out again. But uh, there was a friend of mine was there, a man named Sam Dalton. Some of you may have heard of him. He was a Black American from Denver, Colorado, and. Back in those days, we could walk into the prison with anybody. Now you have to be vetted and certified and all sorts of things. But we walked in, and it was a young offenders unit. And uh, some of the guys were into witchcraft, and it was obvious that they wanted to have an argument. Now, Sam Dalton, if you ever met him, had a, never at a loss for words, uh, just everything. I mean, he'd approach somebody and say, you should come to the chapel tonight, my wife's husband is speaking, and people would look and try and figure this out. <laughs> or he, he'd sit out there on a sunny day in the, the park and put his hands out. Of course, he was African-American. People would come by, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm suntanning. You know, and then he would be able to get a conversation. But as, as quick as he was, in that situation, the prison, he turned, and as he turned away, he says, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel. And he walked, walked away. He knew what was going to come. And it would have been a loss of testimony for the other guys. Uh, they were almost looking, well, what's going to happen uh, here? So for me, that was a, a tremendous lesson. The servant of the Lord must not uh, quarrel. So there are things that we need to, uh, certainly, uh, to avoid. But in here, he also talks about going beyond that. He talks about uh, sin and iniquity. And so at the end of verse 19, as Bob read to us, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity In verse 22 he mentions uh, youthful lusts flee also youthful lusts and so uh, sin is is always an issue in life uh, we won't be perfect until we're in glory now, there's some people some Anabaptist groups that teach the possibility of sinless perfection it'll never happen until uh, we're, we're in heaven uh, Someday, wives, again, word of encouragement, your husband will be perfect. But not till, not till then. And uh, so sin is always a possibility. Now, we all know that we get to a certain age, we can't do the things we once thought about doing. Uh, you could rob a bank, but you can't run away anymore. Uh, so, but your mind is still active. And sin can still, as long as you have breath, those youthful lusts, those things can still fill Our minds. And so he says there's things we're to avoid, we're to flee from uh, those uh, youthful lusts. And the Lord would would help us. Uh, It's obvious in the New Testament that that's a a real issue. You know Hebrews chapter uh, 2 talks about the Lord being tried in all points as we are. He's able to help us. Why? Because he's been here on earth he has experience. He he knows what we go through. He was sinless, spotless, undefiled, separate from sinners. But he saw what we go through. He's able to offer help in time of need. Uh, we can approach boldly the throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. First Corinthians 10.13, no temptation has taken you, but such is common to man. But what happens, with every temptation, the Lord will make a way of escape. He provides... The conviction to our conscience he brings the word to mind he lets us know I would suggest that so often when we yield to temptation that the way of escape is in front of the door once you go through the door you're caught but the Lord will challenge you the spirit will convict you before you go through that door uh, and provides a way of escape and so Paul says there's things we should just need to avoid being contentious but also conscious of these things in our life. But there's things that that he wants to affirm as well, things that are vital uh, for us in our Christian life. And he talks about uh, the study of God's word in verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. He's going to talk in the next chapter about the importance of Scripture, inspired uh, by God. Peter talks about the fact that we have a more sure word of of prophecy. We have the written word of God. But here the thought is that we're to be diligent to be approved. Now the word approved has the idea of uh, an apprentice having a final test. So let's say he's a block layer and he's gone through his apprenticeship and now he has to uh, lay out a wall. And you know, build a wall, and the teacher, or the certifier, or the inspector comes along and checks: is Is this straight? Is it Is it done properly? That's what the approval is. You've You've done the, the work, the test, and now you receive the stamp of approval. You've passed from your apprenticeship, and now you're a tradesman. So that's the thought here. So we're to be diligent. Now, what does diligence imply? Uh, Peter in Second Peter chapter one. Verse 5 says, besides this, giving all diligence at your faith virtue. So, we are to be diligent. And I would suggest that diligence implies uh, desire, uh, perhaps discipline, devotion, determination. We want to do this. We're going to give our all to this, to be diligent uh, to do it. If you're an employer, you want employees who are diligent, who will do, who will do the job. Uh, we know a number of people who are in construction and perhaps even own construction companies. They have a difficult time finding diligent employees, people that will work diligently when they go to you know, to price another job, go to get material. Sometimes they come back and have to redo what was, what was done. And so diligence is so important. So in terms of scripture, diligence is, is what's called for. To be a good student, to be approved of God. Now he says, rightly dividing the word of truth. Uh, you know, there's two sort of separate tracks in terms of uh, theological views of of scripture. One was we refer to as reform, the other as dispensational. And uh, this line was sometimes applied to dispensational teaching that you rightly divide the word of truth, but it's it's not really about dispensationalism. It's about it's about Uh, Looking at scripture in a sound, what we would call hermeneutical way. Hermeneutics is the principles of interpreting the scripture. And so there has to be a means of approach. How do we determine what scripture says and what it means? How do I interpret it? And so uh, there are rules or principles we follow, historical. What did it mean to the people that received it? And so Timothy's here in Ephesus. What did it mean to him? What do these words mean to him? Uh, We look at the grammar and look at what do the words mean? Now, sadly, in our world, uh, there is a a movement, uh, the Emergent Church. I don't know if you've heard of of that. Uh, But one of their premises is what's called deconstructionism. Uh, Interestingly enough, uh, two of the names associated, one's Rob Bell, who's, I think, out of Michigan, and the other one's Brian McLaren originally out of Washington, I think he now lives in, in Florida. And uh, his grandparents were assembly missionaries in Angola. His parents were active in Michigan, in the assembly there. They actually went to the assembly we were in in uh, London, Ontario, much before my time. But he, his dad got a medical degree out of Western University in London. Uh, Brian McLaren used to be active at uh, Greenwood Hills, and an assembly in Washington. But then he joined this movement, the emergent church, and deconstructionism. The the view is that scripture means whatever you want it to mean, what it says to you today. So you can see how dangerous that is. What are you saying to me, Lord? And then I become the determining person, the the determining factor. This is what what it means. Associated with that, sadly, is a denial of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. There is a man we know well who is an elder in an assembly in Ontario who imbibed that, who said, no, Christ didn't die for our sins. He merely died as an example. If you Google uh, substitutionary atonement theory, uh, you will see some of this, this argument uh, on both sides. But without the substitutionary death of Christ, where would we be? And so we need to hold to Scripture to to rightly divide the word of truth. Scripture interprets scripture. Uh, you know, Peter says that no scripture is of private interpretation. And so we need to be students of the word and stand uh, for what uh, what is what is true. Uh, interestingly enough, another cousin of of Brian McLaren is a man named Frank Morris, who was uh, a friend of Bob Bruce's here. He was in the R. Assembly in London, Ontario. And so uh, out of that family heritage, uh, Brian has gone a long way in the other, other direction. And so, we need to spend time in the Word, to study the Word. But this passage also talks about the importance of sanctification. Now, sanctification is something that took place positionally the moment you accepted Christ as Savior. You were justified. You were declared right in the sight of God. And that's what we are positionally. So if you or I die as believers, immediately we're in heaven because we've been made holy already. God looks at us in Christ, fully sanctified. But in Scripture, sanctification is also presented as a progressive thing, that we are to be progressively more and more sanctified. Ultimately, there's perfect sanctification when we're with Christ. But progressively or practically, It should be true of us day by day. Sanctification has the idea I've set apart to the Lord. If something's sanctified, it means that it's set apart to him. And so, obviously, if we're going to be uh, sanctified, there's things that, that need to go in our life. There's the negative. And so things like what he says in verse 19, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. If I'm set apart for him, if I'm being sanctified, there's things that, should not be true in my my life but if I'm being sanctified I want to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ day by day I want that to be more tr- true in my in my life you know in the old testament there were items the tabernacle and so on that were set apart were sanctified the priestly order was set apart we too should be set apart so God saves us makes us holy Set apart to Him, but we have the responsibility, and you see that time and time again in Scripture. You see the things we're to get rid of, and the things we are to do, where the movement we are to make. Uh, you know, people will look at some of those things and say, "Well, that seems contradictory. If God's done this, why should I do this?" But they're not contradictory. They're complementary. God has made it possible for us to do this. He's given us His Spirit, His Word. Uh, a new nature, all those things to enable us <coughs> to become sanctified so let's read on from <coughs> verse twenty excuse me, need a drink only windmill driven by water <laughs> And so verse 20, but in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. There if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he'll be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Flee also youthful lust, but pursue righteousness, faith, and faith, love, peace, with those who call on the Lord out of the pure heart. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient and humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. And so here's the the thought of being set apart. And he uses this illustration of of vessels in a house. Now, all of us would have garbage cans in our house, but it's not likely you present them... Uh, as objects uh, to look at and admire in your living room, right? They're necessary, but you put them in the proper place. They're hidden in the closet, in the garage, wherever. But then you have other items that you have have some significance to you, items of value, and you put them on, on display. And so that's the illustration that Paul uh, presents here, that in this great house, there are these types of, of vessels. But if we want to be a vessel fit for the master's use, Holiness is required. We need to be useful to him, a vessel that's set apart for the master's use. What more would we want in life than that, to be suitable for the master to use? He says, ready for or prepared for every good work. And so we, of course, know we're not saved by works, but once we're saved, works become vital and important, Ephesians 2.10. God has ordained these works that we should order our life, walk uh, in them. In Titus two uh, thirteen, the Lord Jesus Christ purchased for Himself a unique people, zealous of good works. That should be true of us. Titus three verse one, verse eight, verse fourteen, all talk about the importance of good works in our life. Matthew five uh, sixteen, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and so glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so, good work should characterize us. Uh, he'll say later on in chapter 3 that it's through the study of Scripture that the man of God is prepared for, for everything God would have him to do for every good work, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so, am I a vessel of honor? I'm going to be a vessel that's useless, useful for him. I need to be sanctified, set apart for his For his service. Now, not only are we sanctified, but wonderfully we are secure. That's also in this passage. We are secure in him. Now, this passage is is addressed to believers, and so that's important to know as well. He's not talking about unbelievers other than uh, the negative example of Hymenus, perhaps, and Phlaeus, and we don't even know uh, where they stood spiritually. But it's possible for believers to, uh, to be led astray, and that happens. People imbibe false doctrine, false teaching. But we are secure. The Lord knows those that are his, and that's a wonderful thing. If you only had one word in the whole New Testament that would speak to your security, it's the word preserved in Jude verse 2. It's in a tense that means yesterday, today, and forever. You can't be unpreserved. You're sealed by the Holy Spirit. There's no such thing as an unsealing. You are declared righteous in God's sight, justified. There's no such thing in the New Testament as being unjustified. So we're to be sanctified, but we can be, have the assurance that we are secure in Christ. And so we're to affirm these things, the importance of holiness uh, in, our, in a believer's life. But then also he talks about being a servant. And we mentioned that in, in verse uh, verse 24, the servant Of the Lord. That's a high calling. In the New Testament, we're referred to as ambassadors for Christ. We're referred to as his disciples, as his friends. Uh, And so we have a high calling. He refers to us as brethren. And so we certainly have a high calling. And a servant suggests several things, and there's a description here in verse 24. You must not quarrel. Again, it's not becoming of a servant to To quarrel Uh, you see the example of Joseph as a servant Uh, he submitted he did the master's will he fled uh, from temptation but what should characterize a servant is gentleness able to teach patient humility correcting one another we think of these things we think of how the Lord Jesus Christ dealt with people the Lord Jesus of course uh, in the temple expressed anger because the money changers were desecrating the house of God, but in his dealings with people in need, he was gracious. Uh, Luke 4.22, they marveled at the gracious words that came out of his mouth. Uh, Last verse of Luke chapter 7, they marveled at him, he did all things well. And so that was his, his character and his conduct. And so these things should be true of us. If you're a servant, you should be gentle to all. It's sometimes hard to do. People disagree. They, intent, uh, they insist on being wrong. And it's sometimes hard to be gentle, isn't it? Philippians 4.5 says, Let your gentleness, your sweet moderation, your kindness be known to all. The Lord is at hand. And so that should be true of us. We should be kind in our dealings. Life has gone on, I'm far more conscious of this, uh, the importance of the impact I have, the residue, what I leave behind in conversations with people. And so we should be gentle, uh, able to teach, that is taking a stand for God's word, knowing what's important, what matters. And he talks about those who have been taken uh, captive by the devil, who have believed the false doctrines, false teaching. Can we encourage them? Can we look to Scripture and bring them uh, back? uh, To be patient, again, it's hard to be patient with people who insist on being wrong. But that's what the Lord calls us to be, to be patient uh, with people. Uh, Humility isn't in some of your translations, some texts, but uh, the idea, again, of of a a servant is that of humility, to take the lower place. Uh, Paul referred to himself as a bondservant. Jesus Christ even James the brother of the Lord a bondservant of Jesus Christ where they took that low place and Philippians 2 were to have the mind of Christ he didn't think it robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation he came and took upon himself the form of a servant and so that should be true of us as well and so those are things that we need to to affirm the the importance of the Word of God, to spend time in it, to study it, to be like the blessed man in Psalm 1, his delight is in God's Word and the law, and in his law he meditates day and night, produces fruit out of his life, prosperity in a spiritual sense. And so the importance of the Word, the importance of holiness, sanctification, being a vessel that's fit for the master's use, that he can take and present and use in situations, and then being a servant, Having a servant's heart and servant's attitude to be a servant of Christ is a high calling indeed. It's what the Father said of the Lord Jesus, didn't he? Isaiah 42 verse 1, Behold my servant, who I uphold, my elect, and whom my soul delights. And so, high calling to be a servant of the Lord. So I trust the Lord will just encourage us uh, with this, things to be reminded of as we go on in the Christian life, as we seek to serve him. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. We think of Timothy in perhaps a difficult situation, and Paul's writing to encourage him, and as he encourages him, he would encourage us. And certainly there's things we need to reflect on, things we need to remember, and things we need to be reminded of. And Father, we pray that as we think of this, uh, these verses and what's important in life, what we do, To avoid not get caught up in not to tarnish the testimony not to get involved in things that lead to ungodliness that destroy rather to have a conversation that's uplifting up building edifying and father help us to uh, seek to uh, to be vessels fit for the master's use to be servants uh, who are qualified to be engaged in the Lord's work and so father bless your word encourage your people We commit ourselves to you. Watch over us as we separate, for we pray in the Savior's name. Amen.